0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This Christmas season, we invite you to look deeper into the incredible covenants God made with His people in Scripture. Tune into our current series, Gift Wrapped, from longing to lavish, to discover God's unwavering promises to meet the ultimate longings of our heart and ultimately renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. I have a question for you. Why do you give Christmas gifts? Why do you give Christmas gifts? Not, not what Christmas gifts you give. Why do you give Christmas gifts? Now stop it with your because I love them nonsense. I know that's not true. Come on, people. This is church. So let's be honest here. Because some of you might love the people you give gifts to. I hope it's a rather large percentage of you. But based on a personal Poll that I did where I interviewed approximately zero people, I came, up, I came up with three categories for why I think a lot of us end up giving gifts sometimes. All right, now this is not scientific, but I think you might find it rings true maybe more often than it should. The first category for uh, how we might describe why people give gifts I think would be called rally time. Rally time. In a sports world, right, it, you're back. You're, you're behind in the relationship, you're, they're your best friend, they're your boss, they're the people that you're the boss of, that's definitely rally time, right? And, and so you're trying to make up from lost ground. Now sometimes it's a losing effort. You'll never be able to give them the gift that they deserve to get from you, right? But you're going to try. And another category, maybe you're familiar with uh, this graphic you've seen before, maybe outside of Christmas, but... Uh, In in relationships, you've seen this picture, right? Exactly how mad are are they, right? Or in this case, husband to wife, how mad is is she? This is a rally time situation, right? You're making up for lost ground. Uh, There's a bookstore out in the lobby after service, uh, and they're looking to make a lot of money. I'm just kidding. Uh, But it is Christmas week. Rally time is running out. It's one category for why people give gifts. I think another reason people give gifts, we might categorize it as equivalent retaliation. I say that with a negative vibe, but understand me, I'm looking at equal gifts here, right? They're going to get you a sweater, you're going to get them a sweater. They're going to get you a gift card, you're going to get them a gift card. They're going to get you a watch, you're going to get them a necklace. This is how uh, an equivalent retaliation gift giving is going to go down, right? You're staying even, everything's equal, in which case you've still probably lost, but you played the game equally anyway, right? It's another category for why you might give gifts. I think a last category for why we might give gifts is the no mercy category, okay? No mercy. You're going to give such an extravagant gift that there's no way they could hope to equal back to you, and, and you're showing them no mercy. You're overloading the gift category, right? You had a budget. It was $25. You weren't supposed to spend more than $25, and you spent $150. It's not fair. There's no mercy. Worst case scenario, you went out and bought a technology device, a car in the commercials. Who does that? Uh, A vacation? This is a no mercy scenario. You probably spent your shared money to buy them something that's going to jeopardize your shared mortgage next month, right? Like, come on now. This is not a fair way to buy a gift. Why do you buy gifts? Why did you buy the gifts you bought? Why are you thinking about returning some of them suddenly? (laughs) Cynical yes. Sometimes we gift in order to gain In a relationship with somebody. Our gift becomes a grift. Don't we do that with God sometimes? I think we do. We throw desperate prayers and acts of service out. Hoping for a little return on our investment. If you know what I'm saying. Maybe a little church with a dash of Christmas kindness. Will unlock our blessing of security. Or success. Or relationship. Or peace. Is that how God works? Is that how you've approached God in this last season? Is all of our gifting and works and service to God really a grifting of God, or at least an attempt at it? We've been in a series called Gift Wrap for the last... Several weeks looking at different covenants of God and seeing how they're fulfilled in Jesus. How really our hopes and needs are fulfilled in Jesus. If you'd give me a, a moment for review, first we looked at the Noadic covenant. We saw that God's promises to Noah that he will never again destroy the world until redemption is fully accomplished. Through God's justice towards humanity, though God's justice towards humanity will always be deserved, God was going to serve justice in a different way. We didn't know how yet. Noah didn't see the end result, but God was going to find a new way. Abrahamic covenant. God promises Abraham, a huge family, that will inherit a land in Canaan and bring universal blessing to humanity. And we can see clearly now that Jesus was that blessing. And then last week we looked at the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant where God promises through Moses to make Israel his treasured possession. He will be their God and dwell in their midst and they will be a kingdom of priests that mediate his goodness to all the nations as and when and if they obeyed him. Which I don't think I'm spoiling for anyone in here. They didn't. At least not often. But Jesus became a better Moses to bring us to God, perfected, a kingdom of priests, able to access God directly because of his work for us. Today we're going to be in Second Samuel chapter 7. So would you turn to, with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll start right at the beginning at verse 1. And in this passage, we see the Davidic covenant, God's promise, God's covenant to David. To put it simply, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 is a promise that God made. That the Messiah king would be a descendant of David and would establish his kingdom that would last forever. That's the summary. A Messiah king would be a descendant of David and would establish a kingdom that would last forever. And this covenant of God becomes a remedy against the trap in our hearts and our souls of turning our gifts, our efforts, our works, our living into a petty scam for God's favor. We want to guard our hearts against approaching God as if our life and our obedience and our acts were a gift that would grift him into our services. We need to pay attention to the promise God made to David. So in 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, it begins like this. Now, when the king, and this is David when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, he was reading into what the king was noticing as a problem here, and Nathan says to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, the lord is with you king david was living comfortably in his own home while experiencing rest from his surrounding conquest and battles and prolonged time waiting to get to the throne from king saul finally after times had been worse than he could have possibly imagined times were good And looking at what he was experiencing, David looks at his house where he's living, the life he has, and then he looks over at the tabernacle, the tent, the mobile place of residence for the Ark of the Covenant with Moses. The Ark of the Covenant where God's manifest presence lived. And he thinks, hey, I'm in this palace, a house of cedar, a permanent dwelling. My comfort is good and God's house I feel like it's not right right now he ought to live in a better place than I do God hadn't called him to do this this is what God had orchestrated a place for him to dwell in the midst of his people as they lived in obedience to him but David was noticing disparity in his heart was not at peace and this kind of seems like a good idea So speaking not on behalf of God, but from his personal view, Nathan agrees and encourages David to do as he wishes. And he says, God's going to be with you. This is good. But God might have had a different perspective. Continue reading with me in verse 4, it says this, But at the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you, the people of Israel, from Egypt, to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. He goes on to say, in all places where I have moved. With all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God looks at this moment and he has a different perspective than David did. He says, Can you build me a house? And the question implies an answer, which he clarifies later. No, David, you can't build me a house. God gives a history lesson then and says, listen, from the very time you came out of Egypt, I have lived in this tent, moving about with you as a nation. And I haven't asked any of the other leaders, any of the other judges, any of the other priests to build me a house. Do you think you can build me a house? See, while building an amazing house for God seemed like a good idea, seemed like the right thing to do from David's intuitions and his instincts, at the end of the day, God didn't need David's work for his glory. God didn't need David's work for his glory. See, God had created the universe, He didn't need a house. Built from the very materials that were his creation in the first place. He didn't need a place to live. Like David, I think we today devise projects and plans based on our instincts and intuitions. While in the meantime, God's given us really clear marching orders that we ought to have been focused on in the meantime. We need to understand that God doesn't need our projects and our plans in order to justify his existence, in order to feel at home in his creation, in order to receive glory. What God wants, he's been clear about, he wants our hearts. He wants our obedience to what he's already called us to. He wants us to love enjoying him above everything else. I'm reminded of the way that God communicated this message in very concrete ways. When he worked with Balaam and reminded him that he was able to work, even if Balaam was being stubborn, by using Balaam's donkey to speak truth to him. God reminded Elijah that he was able to continue his work with or without Elijah. He had hundreds of faithful messengers hidden away that even the mighty Elijah didn't know about. God wasn't dependent on him. God reminded the crowd of people gathered outside Jerusalem shouting, Hosanna, that even the rocks in that field would have cried out his praise if they had not. God wasn't dependent, isn't dependent on David's work for his glory, and God doesn't need our work for his glory. And our heart should start there when we think about our relationship to God. We shouldn't presume that God needs our fresh ideas to bring him glory. After all, he created us. He rescued us. He's redeemed us. Everything has been of him and for him. In fact, even when God calls us to a life of obedience, a life of works, a life of of sacrificial love, proclaiming the gospel, making peace, those good works, as Ephesians 2.10 reminds us, those good works were planned ahead of time by God for us to be able to walk in. Though a life of faith should rightly include acts of service and obedience to God, God does not become our debtor When we do. He isn't in a bad spot when we fail him. And he isn't changed for the better when we succeed. God doesn't need our work for his glory. We'll see that there's something incredibly comforting about that. When we consistently and continually fail. Even our own desires. But even though God didn't need David's work for his glory, that didn't mean work wasn't being done. If you continue in verse 8, it says this. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies From all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. God was at work to bring rest to the people of Israel, God worked to bring David to rest. Do you notice all the personal pronouns God uses in this section where he mentions no words and he, he makes sure there's no mistakes about who the hero of this story is? Yes, the nation of Israel may sing that David has slain his tens of thousands, but it was God who did that work. God brought David to rest. It was he that was in control over David's life. He brought David from being a shepherd to making him a king. He has been with him since that time, cutting off his enemies. And even looking into the future, God promises that he will be the one that gives David renown, a name, a place, and peace and rest. These all point back to the covenant he had made with Abraham anyway. This was going to be his work. In all of this, God declares that he is the one that's done the work in the past, and he is the one that will do the work in the future. This is the story of God. God works. We rest in him. So just as David saw God as the one doing the work for him, we need to see that God works to bring us to rest. God works to bring us to rest. God's covenant with David and also with Noah and Abraham and Moses ought to increase our joy and faith because God's main point is that he exerts all of his power and all of his wisdom to do good for his people. And we share in that good if we're made new in Christ. That is the reason that we can know peace and rest in our soul. The most practical truth we can know is that God is all-powerful and all-wise and all for you. God works to bring us to rest. and Nothing can have a greater impact on the way we view our current bank account, our leverage of our free time, the way we respond to stress, the way we view our family relationships, the way we choose to confess our sins and our failures, the way we plan for our futures— Confidence that the sovereign God is working everything together for your good out of absolute grace to us affects every area of our life. God reminded David that it was Him who was doing the work in his life. It was God who was working to bring David peace and success, both now and in the future. And then The covenant-making God reaches his high point in this passage. Let me pick up again from the second half of verse 11. God says, Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne will be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The original rhetorical question God had asked for David was this You will build for me a house? And then God turns that question on its head and says, I am going to make for you a house. This is the way it works. God was going to make David a house, a dynasty, a line of rulers, of kings established forever. Though David is going to die, God promised to establish his offspring in his kingdom forever, that his descendants would build a house, a temple for God, and that God would discipline his descendants, his family, if they ever gave themselves into sin. The Davidic covenant goes into effect right away, but it has a truer and a fuller manifestation in the centuries that follow. Because in the short term, David's son, Solomon, does become king in fulfillment to covenant and does go on to build the temple of David's vision for God according to the covenant. But after Solomon gives his heart away to other loves, to other gods. And in accordance to covenant and fulfillment of God's promise, it says in 1 Kings 11 that the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your mind and you have not kept my covenant and my statues which I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I won't do it in your days, but I'll tear it away from the hand of your son. However, and will not tear away all the kingdom. Listen to the covenant get fulfilled here. But I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. God had made an unconditional covenant with David. And even when his descendants chose to sin, and even when God kept his word to punish his children by taking the kingdom away from them, he continued to give them a ruler of David's line, Over the house of Israel. So the kingdom would be divided in two. It would be overcome by Assyrians and the Babylonians because of their disobedience. But the prophet Ezekiel then looks to the future salvation of God's people and is still sure of God's covenant to David. He speaks this word in Ezekiel 37 I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be my God, my servant David, a descendant of David, covenant keeping God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. Ezekiel looks to a completion of God's covenant with David. The prophet Jeremiah stresses that the coming king is going to fulfill the need for a king to be righteous, to not be disobedient, to not need to be disciplined by God. So in Jeremiah 23, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David. The lineage of David, from the family of David, a righteous branch. He shall reign as a king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Do you see a trend here? God fulfills his covenant. In Isaiah, Isaiah sees This covenant, keeping God more clearly in the son of David, in the family of David, more than anyone. When he writes, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Because upon the throne of David, And over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore. God continued to state to his people through his prophets, even as they strayed from him. He was going to keep his promise to David. There would be a king. So it's no surprise when angel Gabriel appears to Mary in Luke chapter 1. That he connected dots to a covenant-keeping God. Even though it wasn't deserved, even though it hadn't been earned. And he says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign in the house of Jacob forever, and the kingdom of Of this kingdom, there will be no end. The birth of the Messiah, of the family of King David. Good news last to the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A ruler to accomplish the reputation and the place and the peace and the permanence that was long promised to them. The covenant with David is being fulfilled. But what to any of us outside the genetic and nationalistic heritage of Israel does this mean? The early church wondered that too. Because Jesus didn't fulfill his peace and his place and his permanent reign in the ways they at first anticipated he might. So in Acts 15, the church leaders realized that the never-ending kingdom of God promised to David was expanding outside their own national identity and outside their physical borders. And Simon Peter has related to God, it says, God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets, it, they agree. As it's written, he quotes Amos 9, after this, I will return I will build the dwelling of David which is fallen. Covenant hints, covenant echoes. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up that the rest of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Like promised this Jesus, son of David, son of God, would build a house for the Lord, but it would not be a temple in Jerusalem. It would be a church. A people for his name, for all nations and ethnicities. A spiritual house that the Temple of Solomon could have never been compared to. The reason the Davidic Covenant Church family is precious to us, especially right now at Christmas, is because we have a problem. We can't serve God. We can't serve God. There's blood on our hands like David There's guilt in our bones. There's rebellion in our souls. We can't do enough, be enough, build enough to make things right with God. Our best works are filthy rags. Our gifts become grifts aimed at his favor. But God made a promise which he hinted at to Noah and then Abraham and then Moses and revealed more fully to David where he himself picked up the responsibility to establish a righteous ruler over Israel, yes, but also over all who are called by his great name, the son of David, the king forever, our victory, fulfiller of the covenant, Jesus Christ, Amen. of the kingdom of this world It has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God provides a forever king to serve us. The Davidic covenant finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus, the son of David, the true king of kings that's come to establish his forever kingdom. When Jesus came in the flesh at Christmas, God was providing for us a forever king. But he isn't a typical king. He came not to be served, but rather to serve his kingdom. To give his life in order to build an eternal house. He's a king that came to serve us with his very life. So we realize, along with David, that we can't serve God better than he serves us. We can't serve God better than he serves us. This is our God. He's a covenant maker, powerfully moving for our good plan. Before you and I were even here to impress him, with our magnificent lives or careers or churches or countries or world, the King and Creator entered the tapestry of His making to serve us in perfect and sacrificial love. So we can't serve God better than He serves us. We can't put Him in our debt. He's not needing our work for His glory. He brought us rest, ultimate life, and peace and joy through the work of His forever king. So responding to this covenant, even with the partial understanding he had, David said in verse 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God beside you. We respond with him. Faithful or unfaithful, come. Strong or weary, come. Together or apart, come. Let us adore him. Come, let us adore him. Because there is none beside him. Christ the Lord. Let's adore him and rest in his work for us forever. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together.